and invite Zach to do our scripture reading. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. What's up, guys? I'm Zach. For those that don't know me yet, uh, I am uh, normally at the nine, but I'm excited to be here with you. And I don't speak any foreign languages, so I'm just going to read in English this morning. Uh, but if you want to join me, we're going to open up to First Thessalonians four. And we're going to read uh, verses 9 through 12. This is the word of God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Thank you, Zach. Good morning, church family. Good to see you all. Uh, If you're joining us online, welcome. Hopefully the roads have thawed out a little bit for you. Um, I was driving here this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new. Driving in early this morning and kind of sleepy, not really paying attention. And I thought to myself, oh, I probably should like slow down and drive more carefully. And so I pressed my brakes and started to fishtail. And I was like, yes, I should slow down and drive more carefully. So Hopefully you guys all got here safe, and for those of you who are joining online, you're really safe. Uh, good job. We are, <laughs> uh, we are in a season of Advent, and Advent is this season that Christians have celebrated for centuries now to set aside time to specifically practice waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And how many of you would agree with me that as Americans, we are not particularly good at waiting? And so this can be a little bit of a foreign feeling practice for many of us. It's like, even even in the Christmas season, I've noticed that like, it's earlier and earlier and earlier that the the Christmas radio station has started playing songs. It was like middle August this year. They're already like, Santa Claus is coming to town. No, he's not. He's like three more months. So... Uh, we're just not particularly good at waiting. And so for us as followers of Jesus, this Advent season is actually an opportunity for us to practice the spiritual discipline of waiting. And this Advent, we are focusing on the theme of Emmanuel, God with us. And Pastor Jason kicked us off last week preaching about God with us in our hopes and in our fears uh, next week, I'll be teaching about God with us in our sadness and our sorrows. We're going to look at God with us in our joy. But today, I would like to, uh, the ever-enthralling sermon title, God with us in the mundane. So will you join with me in prayer? And let's ask God to meet with us in this time. Lord, Lord, we bring our hearts before you. Our restless, impatient hearts. Here we are, Lord. Lord, the, the, the thing that woke us up last night, going through our minds, bring that to you right now. That imaginary conversation with a friend or a family member, the fight, Lord, we bring that to you right now. Lord, the, the, the rock, the pit in our stomach, we bring that to you right now. Whatever, whatever we are, whoever we are, wherever we find ourselves, we bring ourselves, all of us, the real us, to you right now and ask that you would meet with us. Holy Spirit, would you speak through the scriptures that you inspired to be written? Would you guard my speech and let me only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word? 
And may we all grow closer to Jesus, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, as a result of our time together here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You know, the, the Bible and the Christian faith in general is full of big moments, big concepts, big ideas. And as a preacher, I love to speak about these things. You know, we, we, we could come in and talk about how God, you know, is the God of all creation. He's the God who hung the stars in the sky. He's the one that filled the oceans. He's the one that raised the mountains up. He's a, he's a big God over all creation. Or we could talk about how God is the God over all of history and over all time. That for centuries he has been, you know, the good news of Jesus has been proclaimed. And for centuries before that there was preparation. He's the God of, of all ages. He's the God of all people. Every language that is spoken under the sun, every skin color, every nationality, men, women, young, old, rich, poor. He's the God of all the nations. Or we could speak about how he's the God of miracles. And we read in the Bible these remarkable things that God did. The the parting of the Red Sea or Jesus walking on the the water, feeding the 5,000. The God of miracles. And he's the God of redemption who, who takes tragedies and turns them into triumphs. Who takes our brokenness and turns it into his glory and our joy. And he's the God of of. of of all things new, or we can talk about how he's the God of courage and how we have to live bold and courageous lives for God. And we have to do the difficult things and put our sin to death. Even that language, like slaying our sin and putting it to death and and boldly sharing the faith. So much of what we talk about and so much of what we do in church and in the Bible and in our worship gatherings is big and, 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 and these monstrous concepts. And then you get in your car and you drive home and there is laundry sitting on your couch and it has been there for too long, like several days. It has been there looking at you, mocking you, not folding itself. And you think, I can't deal with this. So you walk over into the kitchen to get yourself a snack and you open the fridge like somebody needs to go grocery shopping. There is no food in this refrigerator. And then you turn around, you see a sink full of dishes. Not at my house, your house. This is your house we're talking about here, right? And when, I, when we first got married, I was just stunned at how the dishes were like would do themselves. And then I learned later it was not the dishes were not doing themselves and I had to participate in what was going on in this miracle of a clean sink. One of the things that we can maybe accidentally do in a worship gathering like this is to even say things like, you know, just set aside all of your distractions and put away everything and let's just only focus on God. But, and I think there's value in that, but the problem is most of your life is kind of that mundane sort of stuff. Most of your life isn't the big moments of either the big moments of joy Right? An excellent family vacation or camping in the Grand Canyon or some big epic thing. And and honestly, most of your life isn't even the sorrows, right? The hospital visits or the, the broken relationships. Most of our lives is laundry, grocery shopping, having to get your oil changed. 
oh man, I hate, hate car repairs. Burning, burning hatred of car repairs. Some, uh, boredom. Boredom. Like we're so, we're so scared to be alone with our thoughts, we have to pipe music into our elevators. Bad music. It's called elevator music. It's awful. So, if Emmanuel means God is with us, then I have a very simple point to make today. It is that God is with us even in those mundane things. It's an easy concept to articulate, harder to live out. And so we're going to turn to God's word in the book of 1 Thessalonians in the Apostle Paul to help us see how this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of background. We're not doing a sermon series on 1 Thessalonians, but just a little context will help you understand why these words that Paul writes are so uh, profound. So Thessalonica is the capital city of Macedonia. Macedonia, if you know anything about the region, uh, you've got Greece, which is kind of the main country, and then Macedonia is the region up to the north. Anybody who's a history buff know the really uh, important person that was from Macedonia? Alexander. He was pretty great. Yep. And he... (laughs) I did it at the nine. I swore I wouldn't do it again, and it just, it happened. It just comes over me. Uh, Actually, this is a really important city, uh, Thessalonica. It was important for trade because it was a port city and a lot of shipping, but it was actually really important for politics. In fact, I just learned this last week that the city of Thessalonica was named that. It was named after Alexander the Great's sister. So it's a very important cultural city, political city. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, made a trip to Thessalonica, somewhere, uh, best we can tell, AD 50, 51. You know, so somewhere within about 20 years of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul made a stop there. And if you want to actually turn with me over to Acts chapter 17, this is a fun story about the establishment of the church in Thessalonica. It's a short stay. They get a lot done in three weeks. Listen to this. Uh, Acts 17 verse 1. After they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. One other kind of important piece of history to know is uh, the emperor had kicked all of the Jewish people out of the city of Rome about two years, maybe a year before this. So many of the Jewish people had resettled in all sorts of places around the Roman Empire, including Thessalonica. So even though we're not told explicitly, it's very likely that this Jewish synagogue was made up of a lot of people who had recently had to flee as refugees, flee for their life. And so there's, there's probably some anxiety in the city. As usual, was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so for three weeks on Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. Here's his message. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, the long-awaited Redeemer from God. Now, some of them were persuaded And they joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So these are non-Jewish people who still, uh, who have chosen to follow and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. So these are Gentiles who are uh, worshiping as Jews, and then now they're following Jesus, as well as a number of the leading women. 
cities like these, oftentimes women would have big uh, roles in business and in economics. We can read about some other famous women like Lydia who were using their wealth to help bankroll and fund the spread of the gospel in the early church movement. It's pretty cool. But now, verse 5, some of the Jewish leaders and the Jews became jealous And they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. Paul's only been there for three weeks. Riots. They attacked Jason's house. We don't know exactly who Jason is, but context would lead us to believe he's some sort of leader in the Jewish community. So they attacked Jason's house and they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. So when they didn't find Paul and Silas and those guys, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, some of these believers, before the city officials shouting, here's what they shouted, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too and Jason has welcomed them. It's the reputation of Paul, right? They've turned the world upside down. That's one of those like big moments, right? Big, turning the world upside down, riots. And they're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, this Jesus. Boom, nailed it. They absolutely got it right. The crowd and the city officials who heard these things were upset. You don't want to rock the boat in Rome. You don't, want to, you don't want to come under the scrutiny of the Caesar. You guys know, we've talked about this, the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. How do you get peace in Rome? You put a sword to someone's neck and say, be peaceful. It's very effective. So they're very upset and hey, don't, don't, don't cause any trouble. We don't want to get in trouble. So after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they release them. And then later on that night, Paul and Silas sneak out and they go on to Berea and they go on to Athens. There it is. That's the start of the church in Thessalonica. Now, within a short period of time, Paul writes them a letter to encourage them to check up on them, check in on them. And so we have the letter known as 1 Thessalonians. We have two letters to this church. 1 Thessalonians is actually one of Paul's earliest letters. Uh, It might be, some scholars argue that it's the earliest letter that Paul wrote. Most scholars think it's Galatians, but it's a very early letter. And it's interesting, it's, it's less philosophical and more pastoral. If you're used to reading Romans and, you know, where Paul's very, very philosophical, this is not that. This is a letter to some people where he just, he gives some travel updates. Hey, we're, we're doing this and we're going to this place and God was gracious to us. And hey, let me just remind you, you already know these, there's a lot of like reminders. There's a lot of encouragements. There's kind of one big question that he takes time to address having to do with the return of Jesus. Some of the people in Thessalonica were maybe, you know, kind of baby Christians, new believers, and they didn't know, like, what's the deal with Jesus returning? Did we miss it? What about those people that died? What's going to happen to them? Like, if, if they're dead when Jesus returns, and so Paul has to kind of tell them, hey, don't worry about it. You didn't miss it. You'll, you'll know when Jesus returns. You'll, you'll definitely know. It's going to be a, kind of a big deal. It's in the Greek. You have to read it. But it's a, Paul kind of answers that question for him, but kind of nestled in the middle of all of this is this pastoral reminder about how they should order their lives. So we we heard this in our scripture reading. Let me read it to you again from 1 Thessalonians 4. So he says, about brotherly love, you don't don't need me to write anything to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. How many of you know if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you, And God himself is teaching you from the inside out how to live like Jesus. Is that encouraging to anyone here? 
The the question is, will we listen and will we cooperate? But God himself teaching us how to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the whole region of Macedonia. You guys have a great reputation in this area. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more and seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Does anyone else find this description a little bit ironic coming from the guy who was just accused of turning the world upside down. Hey, just lead a quiet life. Like, really, Paul? You're the one saying that? I like these sorts of pastoral instructions. Think, think, think about the, the imperatives, the commandments that are given to us in this passage. There's five. The first one is this, to live quietly. Live quietly. Secondly, is to mind your own business, right? He says, yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't get meddling in other people's affairs. He says, work with your hands. Work with your hands. Be productive. He says, consider your witness, right? You want to think about how you're behaving in the presence of outsiders. And then lastly, he says, be self-sufficient. Sometimes it's fun to take an instruction list like this. And to help kind of understand it, think of the opposite. Like, think of what would be, like, what would be the screw tape letters version of this, okay? So instead of living quietly, living obnoxiously. Please don't raise your hand or elbow anyone, but have you ever known any followers of Jesus who were obnoxious? How does that adorn the gospel of Jesus? By being an irritant, by being a, a, a grit What about minding your own business? What would be the opposite of that? Nosy, gossip, meddling in other people's affairs. Let let me just say this. In our culture, I mean, we literally have websites and magazines that call themselves celebrity gossip. We are swimming in an ocean of nonstop, constant gossip, so much so that I think that you and I as followers of Jesus don't even recognize when we are gossiping because compared to the culture that we're living in, it just maybe doesn't seem like that much. Ask yourself, do I need to know this information about another person? Do I need to, like, is this... Does this affect me? Do I have any, am I being asked to help in some way? Am I, or, or am I just, just, oh, I'm going to pray for you. Work with your hands versus just being unproductive. You know, in major cities like this, they would have, you know, philosophers and, you know, rhetoric would be spoken in the public square and people could gather, especially rich people, upper class people could gather and sit and listen to new ideas and people would talk and share ideas and they would sit and they would argue about it and, then, and really kind of produce, produce nothing. Nowadays, it's just called being very online. That's what we do now. Sharing articles and sharing posts and sharing and sitting and reading and just fritter our time away. And Paul says, now work with your hands. And I will say this, it's not that you're, those of you who like work maybe kind of a more white collar job, there's great dignity in all of our work, but there is something particularly dignifying about just working with your hands, about actually uh, producing something, especially in uh, our part of the world where so many of you work in tech or you're, you're an engineer or something like that. For those of you who, you know, fix our pipes and our wiring and stuff like that, God bless you. Thank you. You're doing holy work working with your hands. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul watching me work for like a whole day? That'd be hilarious. It's like just 
this all day. And then I go home and, phew, I'm exhausted, man. It's really suffering for the cause of Christ, you know. Oh, ding. Okay, hold on back. More, more work, right? Just stupid. Okay, uh, he says, consider your witness, right? Behave properly in front of outsiders. And the inverse of that would be what? Just only thinking about yourself. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to do me. And then lastly, being self-sufficient. Be dependent on no one, he says, versus being a drain and a burden on others. Now, friends, listen, we also know that the same apostle wrote for us to share in one another's burdens. We also know that this same apostle took up an offering to take care of the poor and those who are in famine and those who are in need. So it's, it's not like, a, this is not some sort of just like pure meritocracy, but the idea is you want to be able to, as, as, if it is at all possible, for you to be a productive person who has resources to take care of your own needs and to be able to share with others, not be a drain on others. Now, why... Why would the Apostle Paul write this to the church in Thessalonica? I think that there's a lot here having to do with living in a culture that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember what we were reading? Like this, we're, we're maybe a year or two between the riot and the planting of the church and then the writing of this letter. We're only a few years removed from the Jewish people being expelled from Rome and fear and threats of the Caesar. Like, could you try to just imagine, I know that for many of us, we feel increasing cultural hostility against the gospel of Jesus Christ, but like, this is for real persecution. Like, somebody's going to show up, arrest you, kill you, beat you. And Paul is saying, I want you to live a quiet, simple Un, un uh, bothersome sort of life. I think that also it's important to remember a couple of things that would be kind of running in the background here for Paul's instructions. Three thoughts come to mind for me. One is this. We have to remember that most of life is pretty mundane. <laughs> most of life is pretty mundane, right? Contrast between Acts 17, the riot we just read about, versus 1 Thessalonians 4. Best we can tell, they weren't like having a weekly riot in Thessalonica. That like happened one time. That was a big deal, right? Sometimes in your life, you're going to be like, whoa, this is, this is one of those moments. Uh, <laughs> we, had a, we went on a family vacation this summer, and we went to New York City. And uh, that, the, the, the city is very busy. It's very like, you know, high energy. It's like a whole city full of like people like me. I've stressed some of you out really bad. I'm sorry. Uh, it was glorious. And... Uh, our family, our kids did amazing. We didn't have any like big family fights except for one time right in the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> and we were trying to cross over the Brooklyn Bridge and one of our kids really wanted to go and me and my wife really wanted to go over there to see this other area. We're going on foot. And, and if any of you have been to Manhattan, the Brooklyn Bridge is busy already. Like there's people there selling tourist stuff all the time and like they're shouting and yelling, buy, buy this stuff, buy this stuff. And then there are commuters riding their bicycles by, I don't even know how, like, they're like 94 miles an hour on a bicycle. It's like screaming past us. And then a couple of our kids, the younger ones were getting tired. They wanted food. They wanted to go back to the hotel. They thought I was going to let them like watch TV or something, kids. And so then we're like, we're kind of there. We're having this little bit of an argument. And then if you've, if you've been there too, the Brooklyn Bridge, the, the, the Manhattan side of it is right by like City Hall. And there was a protest going on about vaccine passports. And so then like 200 people go like chanting with signs while we're having a family argument in the 
middle of the Brooklyn Bridge while people are yelling at me to buy their tchotchkes and bicycles are going flying by. I'm like, this is an amazing moment. I just had like kind of an out-of-body experience. Like, I will remember this moment for the rest of my life. Those moments are fun. Those moments are happy. Those mo- you know, there, there's also the sad, tragic moments. But most of life, honestly, most of life is pretty mundane. David had his moment with his sling where he slayed Goliath. But how many tens, hundreds of thousands of rocks did he throw with his sling just sitting there in the field at a soda can? Well, they didn't have soda cans back then. You know what I mean, right? A shrub, a stump. In your life, one of the things my wife has said to me over the years, it's convicting, it's encouraging, but it's helpful, is, is there's times I get kind of frustrated. I, my personality, I like new and exciting or whatever, and I can get frustrated over the mundane and the routine and the rhythm and all those sorts of things. And she'll say to me, she goes, hey, Aaron, this is your life. This is, this is actually your life. Oh, yeah. For, for some of us, too, just like we sit there on Instagram and just scrolling and you're looking through Instagram or TikTok or whatever because it's like, this is exciting, it's, but you're the one, you're sitting there on your couch in your fuzzy pajamas, just bored, looking for some of that excitement. I think that we would all do well in a culture that idolizes the big and the loud and the fast and the furious to learn how to be bored sometimes, how to just sit how to say, yeah, this is my life. The second thing it's important to remember, though, it's not just that life is mundane, it's that God himself delights in the mundane. You don't believe me? No. Look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, the heavens are pouring out speech And night after night, they communicate knowledge. Every day, every night, the rhythm and regularity of nature is giving God glory. On Monday, I took a day out of the office. I wanted to get away from the computer, the the thing that the Apostle Paul would make fun of me for. And I went and I found a spot out east, kind of near uh, like Skykomish. I went and sat by the Skykomish River and I wrote most of this sermon actually with a pen on paper. Like I've not done that in forever. And I found a spot to sit out looking at the river. And the river was really, I mean, it's rushing because of all the rainfall we've had. The, the water's flowing really big. And I just said, I want to just sit here. I was thinking of this. I was thinking of this psalm, thinking about preaching about the mundane. I was like, I wonder how long I could just stare at the river. I'm just, I'm just going to stare at the river. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of water just flowing past me every few minutes. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, okay, stare at the river. I'm going to be, I'm gonna channel my inner hippie, right? I don't, I don't have an inner hippie. I'm just going to stare. And I, I lasted about six minutes. It's pretty good for me. But I was thinking about this psalm. Like just right now, we're here. I'm preaching. We're worshiping the Lord. That river is still flowing. Right now, there is a hurricane on the planet Jupiter that's been going for almost 400 years. Just, just winds whipping around on some planet that never going to get to go to. Right now there are stars trillions of light years away or whatever, and the chemicals are just reacting and burning and just going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And why? Because that shows something about what our God is like. G.K. Chesterton, the famous philosopher, has this quote 
from his book, Orthodoxy, that I've loved since I read this book back in college. He talks about a child. He says, kids, a child kicks his leg rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, they are in spirit fierce and free, and therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. And children always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Getting amen from any of the parents of young kids here? Again! For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. Oh man. God delights in the rhythms and the regularity and the day after day and the night after night even when we're in our restlessness seeking for some new enthrallment. God is there. The third thing, though, and we see this right here in this passage, the third thing to remember is that the mundane actually testifies to the gospel. Remember this evangelistic encouragement from Paul, right? Live this quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. There is a specific evangelistic appeal that is given here from the Apostle Paul. He wants us to live our lives in this way so that we can proclaim the gospel to the people around us. Now, how many of you, when you think about proclaiming, even that language, proclaiming the gospel, you think something a little bit more big, right? We're going back into like big gospel and big, right? It's, it's, I gotta, I have to preach the gospel. I have to proclaim Jesus. I have to do this, right? We can, we can even think about the Christmas story this way. I was thinking about the, the, the Christmas story. How many like big things there are in the Christmas story, right? There's, there's, first of all, John 1, the word made flesh. That's a big deal, is it not? The eternal, uh, uh, immortal second person of the Trinity takes on human form and God dwells among us. That's a, that's a big deal. You get into, you know, the story in Matthew chapter one where there's a miraculous virgin birth. That like kind of doesn't ever happen ever, right? It's a big deal, a big miraculous deal. Then we get into Luke 2. We'll look, at, we'll look at those passages in a few weeks. Luke 2, the angelic uh, announcements and they're singing and they're, they're terrifying the shepherds. And then you get Magi and, and Matthew, the, Ma, Ma, uh, the Magi from the east are coming to visit Jesus. These, these people bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh and they're, it's just all these big things. And then you actually flip over and you start reading through the gospels and you start to read about Jesus public ministry, and he's, he's got this public miraculous ministry, right? He's multiplying loaves and fishes. He's casting out demons. He's raising Lazarus from the dead. And then he, he eventually goes to the cross where he dies this shocking, uh, gruesome death to atone for our sins and to pay the penalty for our, uh, our wrongdoings. And then he, on the third day, rises from the dead, this astounding, victorious resurrection, conquering over sin, conquering over death, conquering over the 
grave. And then even the part that we sometimes leave off, his, his visible ascension into heaven to sit at the right hand of God where now he rules and reigns over all things. It's big. The gospel story is big. The Christmas story is big. But Paul says that sharing the gospel can also be this quiet, simple thing. And actually, you can see it in Luke chapter 2 in some verses that sometimes we skip over in our Christmas story. About a month after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to be dedicated. And there's some cool stuff that happens there. You get the, the prophetess Anna and Simeon's there and all, all this stuff. It's just cool stuff. And then here's this verse, verse 39. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. There's a lot of time in that verse 40 right there. It's a lot of time. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. There's a lot of time where Mary is sitting there Nursing the baby. Like, yep, the angel said he would deliver Israel, but right now he's just nursing and needs to have his diaper changed again. There's a lot of, there's a lot of mundane just right in that verse. The story goes on a little bit. We get another snapshot of Jesus' life at 12 years old. They go back to the temple for one of the, the annual festivals, and they're there, and they offer a sacrifice. And you guys might remember the story. Mary and Joseph, uh, if you're ever feeling bad about your parents, at least you didn't leave your child in the city of Jerusalem and start traveling back without your kids, like a home alone sort of thing with Jesus. And then they go back, and they find him. He's like, you should have known I would have been in my father's house. And they're like, well, okay, forgive us. You're, you're 12. We thought maybe you'd be like, you know, on the journey with us. And so then he goes and, and they go back and they're all good. And then verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and all the people. It's about 12 years old. And then how old is Jesus when he starts his more public ministry? About 30 years old. So another 18 years right there. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature for 18 years. Carrying supplies for Joseph to the construction site. You know, getting a cold, regular, and just all the stuff of life. Right there, verse 52. A lot of meals, a lot of baths, a lot of laundry. You know, it doesn't, it's not lost on me that the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives us and the Thessalonians and us by extension to follow, Jesus did this perfectly. Jesus did seek to lead a quiet life. It's interesting, even in his public earthly ministry, he would do these miraculous things, but he would tell people, hey, shh, keep it, don't tell anyone. Don't tell the crowds where I'm going. He, he, he worked with his hands. He behaved properly in the presence of outsiders. He, 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 Jesus did all of this perfectly. And this is this whole part of the gospel that in our American culture and even sometimes in church culture, we can miss out on and we can ignore. Again, my, my big idea, 
It's very simple to say, but sometimes it can be really hard to, lead, to live out. It's Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, even in the mundane. And actually, let me, let me take this one step further. If you are in Christ, there's no more mundanes because he turns the mundane into the sacred. Every moment is made holy for the one who is in Christ. And you are no longer washing dishes just to wash dishes. You're actually washing dishes to bring honor and glory to Christ. You're no longer just doing laundry for the laundry's sake. You're doing it to be shaped in the image and the character of God. He makes those moments holy because God is with us. I want to pause for a minute before I wrap this up. I'm actually going to invite Andrea, to, uh, Andrea Fox to come in and just share a little testimony of how God has met with her in some of the mundane moments of life. This is one of those sermons where um, like the application points are like, okay, go live a boring life. All right. It's, uh, I think maybe it's even better exemplified through a story, through a testimony. So Andrea, you just share with us uh, uh, how God's met you in some of that mundane life. Yeah. Not that you have a boring life, but just. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not. That's not offensive at all. Um, It's not. Um, Yeah, so I'm Andrea. I'm married to John, who's one of the pastors here as well. Um, And I was just asked to share a little bit about how I've experienced God with me in the mundane. Um, About four years ago, I transitioned out of working. I had been working full-time or part-time after having our first kid or second kid, but then as we prepared for baby three, uh, it was time to shift, and so I took on full-time at home uh, with the boys, and it was such a challenge for me um, and has continued to be something that I've worked through over the past four years, but I noticed as I did that that I had this discontent that was growing in me because naturally on my own, um, I like variety. I like change. I like going different places, being with different people, doing different things. And I found my life at that time being just the opposite. I was in the same place with the same people every day doing the same things again and again. Um, And I just struggled. And so as I began to pray and read the scripture, talk with John, um, process with some really godly friends, I dug into that discontentment and those desires. Um, And this is how I experienced God with me was honestly in the form of conviction, right? He's coming and he's meeting me in my discontentment and helping me to think through what is it? Why am I struggling to be at home? Why am I struggling to care for these precious little ones? Um, And what, what I found was this deep root of pride, in myself, um, that I didn't feel like I was getting the recognition or um, the appreciation that that I wanted. I mean, it's a two-year-old doesn't say, hey, thanks for changing my diaper again, you know. John was very affirming, but in general, just day in and day out, there was, there was, um, it was a struggle for me. I, I often thought, I'm more competent than this. I'm more intelligent than this. I can do better or, you know, I just, and all of it came back to pride. And then on the flip side, I also realized that um, I was not really delighting in serving my family and caring for these little ones, right? There was not this sense of, um, of, of love, right? I was very selfish in how um, I was approaching my family and 
Not to say that any time you struggle with being at home, it's just pride and selfishness, but a lot of it for me came from, from that root. And so um, I also experienced the Lord through this season um, in the form of comfort. So Philippians 2.13 is one of my favorite verses, but it says that for it's God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. And so over time, and it sometimes seemed painfully slow, my desires would shift bit by bit to see my children and their needs, right? What is it that their soul needs in this moment instead of what is it that I want in this moment? And, and to be fair, I mean, I'm a people person. I want to interact and, you know, engage and talk about deep things and be helpful. <laughs> but a lot of that was coming from this root of pride. And so through this season of kind of mundane living when, you know, opportunities to do those things happened occasionally, but also God often asked me to step aside and to do, you know, the small things, the things that were unseen um, for my kids and for my family. Um, but just at the same time, growing that confidence that he's faithful and realizing that while I'm learning to do that, while I'm doing these small things, God is the one who's doing the big yeah. things, right? Mm -hmm. Through me setting aside my preferences, he's conforming me into the image of his son and helping me to learn, I hope, to love better, you know, less from a place of uh, selfishness or um, seeking affirmation and more from a place of really just seeing people for who they are and where they're at and how to um, meet them where they are. So, so, yeah, that's my encouragement that whether we're in a season we love or a season we struggle with, that we can trust that God is at work and is faithful. Um, so, yeah, that's how I've experienced God with me. Thank you, Andrew. Can we just say thank you for sharing that? It's, it's... Yeah, as she's sharing that story, hopefully maybe for you, what that does is it, it triggers for you, okay, I need, to, I need to sit with the Lord and figure out, is there discontent? Is there pride? Is there whatever it is for you? Um, this is a great conversation for those who know you and love you best to help you sort through some of that. Because again, most of life is going to be quite mundane. And we will miss out on, I love what you just talked about, like the character shaping of our God if we're just trying to survive the mundane so we can get to our next trip to the lake house or whatever. God is with us. God is with us in all things. And even now, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table and to eat and to drink, may we be reminded that God is with us. May we be convicted when we're bored and restless and only seeking after those things that are the most enthralling. And may we be encouraged that the grace of God is changing us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this time. We thank you for, God, even just the regularity of coming to worship on a Sunday and eating and drinking at the Lord's table and the, the regular things, Lord, that, that help us to see your glory. And so I pray now, God, that you would help us prepare our hearts to meet with you through the bread and through the cup, that you would transform our restless hearts and we would see you maybe in places where we haven't seen you before, we haven't thought to notice you before. I pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.